Well, good afternoon. It's uh, 4 p.m. here in London, and it's a very early hour for our guest today, Michael Schellenberger, who's dialing in from the West Coast of America. And it's our delight to be presenting today, Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. Now, you'll know me. I'm Michael Mainelli. I'm one of the directors of Zien. And it really is my privilege to be introducing yet another uh, of the webinars in this great series uh, from FS Club. And I can only do that thanks to the generosity and, and moreover the tolerance rather of our sponsors who allow us to range widely and freely across technology, economics and uh, finance, albeit often with a social purpose. Now, many of us would call ourselves environmentalists. And today we're going to have, I think, quite an interesting discussion uh, with Michael. Uh, before I get to that introduction, just to remind you of the agenda. Uh, the agenda, as ever, is my job to get out of the way so you can hear uh, from our expert. We'll uh, then move. Michael's going to give about a 20 to 25 minute address. It's a very rich address, so stick with it. It's fantastic. Uh, and then we've got about 15 minutes for Q&A. Please do use the GoToWebinar Q&A facility to send your questions uh, to me, and I'll feed them into a conversation with Michael. Please don't email or text me. Much as I know you and love you, I'm here with you online. Uh, so please do send them through to me so that I can feed them in. Um, just before we get going, uh, I, I'd just like to say that I was quite impressed when I read about Michael and his book, and I went to the extent of buying a copy, uh, which I finished over the last week. And I think uh, the themes that Michael's going to cover are really worth listening to. It's a very realistic take about for those of us who've been in the environmental movement for decades to wake up and focus on getting the job done rather than focus on alarmism. Uh, he's got some fantastic quotes in his book. I'll just read one. It is only by embracing the artificial that we can save what's natural. Uh, and a real look there at actually how artificial substances have saved things like hawksbill, turtles, uh, and uh, ivory tusks. So he'll, I'm sure, come on to much of that. And I would say that one of the interesting themes in the book for someone like me who's been involved with the nuclear industry for decades is a real pay-on to, if we're going to get this problem solved, let's not overlook one great opportunity, which is what nuclear energy affords, albeit with, uh, with some caveats. A very realistic book and one that I, I do commend to you. But before we get going, uh, Michael and I were just curious, uh, would you mind answering a question here? Uh, how alarmed are you? about the current state of the world's environmental problem. Extremely alarmed, not too alarmed, content, we're doing just fine, or are you happy we're in a good position? And neither Michael nor I, nor the Zen team uh, can in any sense vote. I can see we're up to almost half the audience voting. It's a very quick audience, Michael. They're, they're very swift off the mark here. Uh, three quarters of the audience have cast their vote, uh, almost up to uh, 100%. And I'm wondering, uh, Morgan, would you mind just showing the uh, results, please? And there you go. So we've got an audience that's uh, alarmed, not extremely alarmed, not too alarmed, and a few who are content. Uh, and I guess with the 48% call at 50% of the audience uh, at the alarm stage, let's see how we feel by the end. So with no further ado, Michael, uh, we're going to transfer control over to you. And uh, the floor is very much yours. I'm very excited about what you're going to say. Thank you. Great. So, and you, can you see this okay? Yep, looking good. And we can see All the right. slide, everything's super. Well, thanks again, Michael, for inviting me. I'm really thrilled to speak with everybody and eager to have a, a conversation. I have a, a lot of slides. I'll probably skip 
um, some of them, but I, all of these slides are available at environmentalprogress.org. And I think that um, Wizen has also made them available to folks online. So first, some of the bad news. These are things you've probably been familiar with. Uh, the planet is warming. It is uh, mostly, if not entirely, caused by humans from carbon emissions and other greenhouse gases. We are seeing some very serious fires in places like California and Australia. We saw last year President Macron of France raised the concern about the Amazon rainforest, the lungs of the world, and the net producer of oxygen, uh, tweeted out by Cristiano Ronaldo, Madonna, others, a threat to the Yanomami Indians in Brazil. We see sea levels expected to rise about two meters, I'm sorry, about a 0.6 meters or about two feet. Polar bears starving. Uh, the population of wild animals has declined by about half since 1970, the total number of wild animals. And those biggest declines are occurring in the tropics. And we see that both the loss of habitat and just the direct eating of animals are two of the biggest drivers. And we use about a quarter, a full quarter of the Earth's land surface, ice-free land surface for meat production. Um, and humans use about half of the total surface of the Earth for ourselves. Um, you know, we've lost an area about the size of Alaska just since 1961. And we are overfishing. You know, about a third of our global fish stocks are overfished. Um, 60% are at capacity. And we see that we've actually tripled the share of fish stocks being harvested at unsustainable levels. So we're eating too many fish and the oceans are being hammered. And we expect that uh, fish consumption to rise. So this was a problem that is uh, not going away and is likely to get worse. And we see much less of the um, oceans are protected than the land. So I would draw attention to this because this is less known, but I think equally important to these other problems. Huge plastic waste problem in the oceans, killing sea life, killing birds and other sea animals. Many of you may have seen this incredible video last a couple of years ago showing a sea, uh, marine biologist pulling a plastic straw out of the nose of a sea turtle in Costa Rica. That hawksbill turtle is critically endangered, according to the IUCN. And, and maybe the most um, dramatic instance of why we should care about the environment is that the coronavirus, unless the conspiracy theories, theorists are right, the coronavirus almost certainly is a zoonotic virus, a crossover from animal species to humans, either at one of the farms in southern China or Southeast Asia or at one of the live wet markets. And that is occurring because of, of human encroachment into nature uh, in terms of deforestation. And that could increase in the future. So this pandemic, Let's hope it's the last for a hundred years, but it may not be. There's no, um, there's no, there's no physical reason why it would be the last. And we find then um, that all of this has raised concerns among children. We see one out of five British children having nightmares about climate change. About half of all people surveyed around the world say they're concerned that climate change will make humans go extinct. But we're constantly told the good news too that solar panels have declined in cost ninety percent. Over the last decade, wind turbines have become much cheaper. The United Nations emphasizes that renewables, including wood fuel, are better for the environment than fossil fuels. 
Energy efficiency means we don't need to use much energy, experts say. We can radically decouple energy from our lifestyles. And going vegetarian um, would have huge impacts on emissions, we're told. And finally, while there had been some talk of a nuclear renaissance, most experts think nuclear is basically dead, not particularly important, not something that certainly we can, not, not a technology we can scale up anytime soon, but no need because we have renewables and efficiency. But what I'm here to say is that that's not the end of the story. Plastic straws, pretty insignificant in the scheme of things, just 0.03% of total plastic waste in the oceans. Really, the mismanagement of plastic waste is a function of poverty. It's coming from countries that don't have landfills and incinerators, which is how we in the rich world deal with our trash and store our trash. Going vegetarian looks like it reduces your emissions somewhere between two and four percent, according to all of the studies, all the major studies that have been done in different countries by different people. Pretty modest reduction in emissions. As for that famous photo of the Amazon, it was taken in 1999. It wasn't taken last year. In fact, what we've seen is that fires have declined around the world about 25 percent since 2003. The number of fires in the Amazon was modestly higher, but we're still at decade lows compared to where we were in the mid 2000s. See, deforestation has actually uh, declined and is still declining. And of the Amazon, it's a tragedy that we've lost any of it, but we haven't lost most of it. In fact, 50% um, of it's already protected and we've lost 20%, so we're really fighting for the last 30%. In terms of the indigenous, there is no indigenous population in the world that has control of more land than the Yanomami. You can see that it's the largest area of land under indigenous control in the world. A population of 19,000 indigenous occupying an area the size of Hungary. Hungary has 10 million people. So it's fine to be concerned about the indigenous, but we should recognize all that Brazil has done for those populations. And in terms of killing sea life, Plastic waste is not great, and it's certainly a threat, but it's not nearly as bad of a threat as fishing boats, invasive predators, and bycatch. In terms of species extinctions, about 0.08% of the total number of plant, animal, insect species have gone extinct since 1500. We don't, nobody wants extinctions, although it's worth pointing out that some amount of extinctions are natural, just as speciation is natural. Even without humans, species went extinct. And that about three quarters of all species are not threatened. And that means that we can focus on the 6% that are critically endangered, the 9% that are endangered, and the 12% and the that are vulnerable. The good news is, is that we've constantly overestimated extinction rates. We just made, scientists made assumptions that have turned out not to be correct. And that's because species are much better at surviving at smaller populations than anybody thought. And in terms of the polar bears, we just don't know what is going on with polar bear population. In fact, there's different there's different populations, but we have a very hard time measuring them because of where they are. It's very hard to locate them. And in fact, if we're concerned about the polar bears, we might we might want to just stop hunting them. In fact, we've killed twice as many hunt, polar bears through hunting as exist in the wild today. 
So in fact, that caption where National Geographic claimed that the polar bear was starving because of global warming, they actually apologized for it because they realized they had no idea why the polar bear was starving. It could have had a disease. It could have been something completely unrelated to climate change. And there's a bunch of successes we've had. The most famous, of course, is humpback whales. They're coming back after a remarkably close brush with extinction. We harvest 97% fewer of them than we did in 1960. Even the sea turtles are coming back thanks to conservation efforts and, and other things that we'll get to in a second. Maybe the most surprising thing is that plastics turn out not to be all bad. Um, we actually used plastics from fossil fuels to replace plastics made from sea turtles, which we nearly hunted to extinction. So tortoise shell glasses, uh, these plastic tortoise shell glasses that I wear, um, they replace tortoise shell glasses, and, and, and that tortoise shell was in fact from sea turtles, including the hawksbill sea turtle that is so critically endangered. So at this point, you're probably wondering, um, who is this guy? Why is all this sound so counterintuitive? Just to establish my credentials, uh, we are a very small think tank. We are completely independent of industry. We advise and testify in front of governments around the world. Here's our website. You can see all the data with all the citations at the website, and I'm the author of Apocalypse Never, which has been both critically acclaimed by a number of important environmental thinkers, as well as a bestseller. My own background is that I started working, I, I went to Latin America when I was 17 to support the Sandinista Socialist Revolution in Nicaragua. I've always been concerned about people and nature. I lived in Brazil, I lived in the semi-Amazon, I saw how difficult life was for people there. They don't hate nature, people use nature to survive. And I think it's fair to say I had a very romantic view at the time, but over time when you live in very serious amounts of poverty, it's, easy, it's, it's hard to keep your romantic view, especially when the young people are telling you that they wanna live in the city and get jobs in the city because they have to spend so much of their time collecting water, collecting wood, just the simple things in life are much more difficult. So the good news is we have done a really good job of reducing extreme population. Over the last 40 years, extreme, extreme poverty went from 44% to 10%. Infant and child mortality declined from 43% to 4% over the last 200 years. And the keys were urbanization, industrialization, energy consumption, raising life expectancy from 40 to 70. And when we get wealthier, when we move to cities, we have fewer kids. So a number of these trends, including food production, are going in the right direction. We, we produce more food than we need, 25% surplus, it's astonishing. We've never had so much food as we have today. And the key is energy. Um, despite the claims that people make about energy efficiency, energy consumption remains tightly coupled to the standard of living, to GDP. We've become much more resilient from natural disasters. Deaths from natural disasters have declined 90%. And there is no scenario for that trend to reverse itself, even under pretty high levels of global warming. You can see that while there's more damage caused by hurricanes, it's entirely a function of more wealth and harm's way. So we just have more property to get damaged. So any all of the increase in property damage can be explained by 
um, in, uh, uh, by increase in wealth, not by climate change. In terms of sea level rise, I think it's the impact I'm least concerned about. We have time to adapt. We know that from the Netherlands that we can live seven meters below sea level. And in fact, Netherlands became a rich country while living below sea level. People worry about tipping points and catastrophic outcomes that are difficult to predict. And that is something to worry about, though it's worth pointing out that that's something to worry about from wars, diseases, volcanoes, tsunamis, and asteroids. And the most comprehensive evaluation of catastrophic risk, tail risk, black swans, comes from Voslav Smeal, who's Bill Gates' favorite analyst. And he finds that in terms of probability and severity, he ranks those other disasters as much greater risk than climate change. You know, in terms of fire suppression, the real problem is that we've allowed the accumulation of wood fuel in both the forests of California and Australia. We, we suppressed fires for over 100 years, allowing wood fuel to accumulate. And so what that means is that well-managed forests survive higher temperatures. So higher temperatures increase the risk of forest fires, but if you manage those forests well, the high intensity fires turn into low intensity fires. And we saw this in California a couple of months ago, these high intensity fires arrived at Shaver Lake Forest and they immediately dropped to the floor and they became low intensity fires. So that's great news because it means that we are able to adapt, including our natural environments to deal with warmer temperatures. Um, so other trends that are going in the right direction, we've seen reforestation in Europe, more of 40%, more than 40% of Europe is now tree covered. And the reason for that is because between 1900 and today, the intensification of agriculture, growing more food on less land, allowed for European countries to reforest. In terms of plastic waste, we know how to solve this problem. Poor countries need landfills or incinerators. In terms of habitat, the trend is going in the right direction. We um, are actually using the amount of land that we use for pasture for meat peaked in about the year 2000 and has declined ever since, which is great news when you, if you care about saving endangered species. Um, skipping ahead, you can see even on aquaculture, there's some positive trends, something we worry a lot about. Um, we need to eat more artificial fish and we need to eat less wild fish. The good news is that we're, we've got much better aquaculture than we did 20 years ago. They used to use aquaculture in the oceans. Now we can do it on land, which also reduces the amount of, um, of the oceans that we use. We're also saving much more land. We're, we, we've saved about 15% of the earth. That's an area equivalent to the whole of, Alaska, uh, the whole of Africa. We need to do a lot better, but we need to build on the successes that we've had. You see the number of protected areas we've increased around the world by 25 times. So how do we do it? You know, I'd like to point to the example of the whales. In the 19th century, we hunted whales for their oil, which we used in lamps. You can see something happens in 1859. We discovered petroleum, which became the alternative substitute for whale oil. Everybody knew at the time that it would save the whales, so much that Vanity Fair published a cartoon 
The caption read, Grand Ball Given by the Whales in Honor of the Discovery of the Oil Wells in Pennsylvania. And there you can see the whales having a party to celebrate their salvation. You can see that what, what happened is a story of massive increases of the fuel in question. So it wasn't just a substitution, it was also a, a major increase in the amount of, of energy we were able to obtain. So we very, very quickly petroleum destroyed the whaling industry. Similar story with wood fuel. In Britain, the Industrial Revolution allowed for the forests to be saved. They used, they, they started substituting coal for wood much, much more earlier, as you can see, than most people realized for hooding, heating and cooking, but it really disappeared with the Industrial Revolution. Air pollution has been declining everywhere in the world since uh, the last 50 years. Even coal is burning much cleaner. Our technologies have reduced air pollution dramatically. The amount of land that we use for agriculture has increased by 8% overall, but the amount of food we grow has increased by 300%. It's an incredible achievement by our farmers. And so you can see that um, we are also producing much more beef and cow's milk, even as we've used less land for pasture. Some of this is technology. You know, we've uh, doubled the, the weight of chickens and cut the feeding time by half. So we can get more chicken on less land. And um, we, we've also been able to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions in the process. Paper bags turn out not to be a great substitute. Uh, they actually end up using uh, much more um, energy and have a bigger environmental impact. And the picture that I'm trying to describe here is a process of what we call dematerialization, where we invent technologies. The iPhone is the greatest example where we don't need newspapers anymore. We don't need elaborate stereo systems, calculators, notepads, clocks, games, all of these things we now have in our hands. And that was thanks to both energy and dematerialization and technology. Cities are the great de dematerializer. They cover just half of the ice-free surface of the earth and yet half of all humans live in cities now. And you can see as we go through different modes of production, our population densities increase. So in the book, I talk about this incredible yellow-eyed penguin, which we were able to visit in New Zealand. It remains threatened by landscapes that look bucolic to people. So what you have here in New Zealand, it's a very beautiful landscape, but you have this very low density farming. And so what we want to see if we care about the yellow-eyed penguin is more sheep on less land so that there's more habitat for those yellow penguins who don't like to be around other animals. But these are very beneficial trends. You see them all over the place. We've replaced farm animals with machines. That's reduced the amount of land that we need to use for animal feed. And so the key for sub-Saharan Africa is to increase yields. If we just used irrigation, fertilizer, farm machinery, roads, we can increase yields by 100% in Africa. And that means more food, less land, more room for habitat. Same thing globally, we can increase yields 50% if nations just increase their crops to their full potential. And the result is declining rates of deforestation, reforestation in wealthy countries, we see that the use of wood has peaked and is starting to go down globally. Very exciting. 
The amount of the land that we use total for agriculture is nearing its peak. We're getting people worry about runoff from fertilizer. We're getting better at using fertilizer over time. Since the 60s, Netherlands has doubled its yields while using the same amount of fertilizer. That means less nitrogen pollution in the environment. People worry about topsoil loss. In fact, we're getting much better at dealing with topsoil. It's the use of no-till agriculture, of fertilizers, of other chemical inputs have allowed us to protect our, our soils. In fact, at twice the rate than we do in, in, other, in developed nations. So the fact is a lot of the solutions that people think are green just don't work. You know, most people aren't vegetarian. They don't wanna go vegetarian. All the efforts to moralize about vegetarianism don't work. In fact, 80% of those who try to be vegetarian abandon it um, and have to so in the first year. Similarly, you can see we've, uh, you know, we've got these good solutions on plastic. It's now clear that our efforts to recycle plastic in the United States results in recycling companies sending that plastic waste to poor countries where it often ends up in the ocean. So if we don't know where the plastic, if we don't know that our plastic waste is being recycled in our, in our hometowns, then it's better to put it in landfills or incinerate it. So again, this move from pasture beef to more concentrated agriculture is absolutely essential to reducing our land use impact and our carbon emissions. I'm just gonna skip ahead a little bit here. Um, and I think one of the things I wanna point out Apocalypse Never is the ways in which environmentalists often oppose the good technologies. So I mentioned the artificial fish as substitutes for farmed fish. Unfortunately, this really promising Farmed salmon is opposed by most environmental groups for totally irrational reasons. The fish is completely healthy and safe. In fact, it's cleaner and better than the salmon we get from the oceans. We see that natural gas from fracking resulted in a 60% decline in mountaintop removal. There are side effects from natural gas exploration, but they are a small fraction of the impacts from coal mining. Just look at the devastation from coal mining. Um, we've been very good at reducing the, and you can see here, we've reduced the amount of coal we use. Same story in Britain as in the United States. We transitioned from coal to natural gas, and that transition has been going very rapidly over the last decade. And what we've seen is that the amount of carbon that we produce per unit of energy has actually declined for 150 years and should continue to decline as long as we allow that benevolent transition to occur. So you can see that the key to all this is energy. Um, the three women who are the main characters in the book use significantly different amounts of energy and they use significantly less biomass wood fuel as they move up the energy hierarchy. Um, I know I'm running out of time, so I'm just gonna skip ahead to some a couple of points about nuclear. The countries that have radically reduced carbon intensity have done so with nuclear, Sweden, France, Switzerland, Hydro has also played an important role. We've spent a lot of money on solar and wind, but we've gotten about half as much electricity as we did from nuclear for about the same amount of money. You can just compare France and Germany. France gets about more than twice as much of its electricity from clean energy sources. It produces, um, uh, it, it pays about half as much for electricity as Germany, and it produces one-tenth of the carbon emissions 
These are two very big cases. It avoids cherry picking to look at these two big countries side by side over time to compare the impacts of, of, of solar and wind to renewables. So we can get into some more of this in a little bit. Um, we see renewables have become cheaper as solar panels and, and wind turbines, but because of their unreliability and the large land use requirements, they end up making electricity more expensive. People worry about the waste from nuclear. For me, it's the best, it's the reason nuclear is the best. There's very little of it, it's easy to contain. So why are we, why is everybody so confused about environmental issues? I think there's sort of the a fallacy here, an appeal to nature fallacy. People think solar panels are natural, nuclear plants are unnatural. You know, in reality, we know that we need artificial things to replace natural resources that we want to protect. So yes, sea turtles are more natural. That means we don't want to use them. Ivory from elephants, we used to use them for piano keys and billiard balls. Now we use plastic from fossil fuels. Um, we have a huge energy density problem with solar and wind. They produce more waste. They require more land. You can see solar farms just use a huge amount of land, about three to 400 times more land for solar farms than for nuclear power plants with big environmental impacts, including on the desert tortoise. This has led to major protests around the world, including in Germany against wind farms. There's been a, a set of about a romantic opposition we've seen. You've seen attacks on economic growth out of the idea that somehow economic growth is the enemy, when in fact, as we've seen, it's been the driver of environmental protection. This idea that, that we are um, face physical limits that cannot be transcended through technology. It's been repeatedly disproven for over 200 years. And, and we've seen ourselves get manipulated by fear. I think one of the most disturbing statements last year was this idea that we should panic. We should not wish for our worst enemies to panic because what panic is, it means unthinking action and behavior. We need the opposite of that. So I'll just wrap up. As you can see, we've got other slides I can show if there's sort of questions about it. There's financial interest involved here. Um, but to kind of cut to the chase, here's what matters. Um, you know, we do need to reduce emissions. It is an important thing. Even though polar bears, we don't know if they're threatened now, they very well could be in the future. We need to have good waste disposal systems. We need to move from matter-dense energy to energy-dense fuels. We need to make agriculture more efficient so we can protect more land. Um, we need to use more domesticated meat rather than wild animals. Um, and again, we need to switch to alternatives. So the fact of the matter is we save the natural environment because we love it. We don't save it because we depend on it for our survival. Really, technology has taken a massive role for our, our, our lifestyles and it also plays an important role for decoupling for the environment. But it, I do think that the core motivation here is our love of nature and, and we should appeal to that um, as we set out to, to make the world a better place. Thanks very much. I can't hear you, Michael. I'm not sure if I'm the only one. Thank you very much, Michael. <laughs>
the 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 enormous uh, sort of mute embarrassment um folks um, that was a lot that michael went through and thank you michael uh, a reminder that the slides are online uh, and on our site and also on michael's site and you can go through them it's a little frustrating because there's a lot of good content there and i'd encourage you to peruse it but we have a lot of comments and questions michael um now, michael you're a vegetarian is that correct uh, no, I was a vegetarian for 10 years, and I started eating meat again when my wife was pregnant and started eating meat. Okay. Uh, Bob McDowell is sort of concerned that part of the climate change agenda seems to be inextricably linked with uh, vegetarianism. Any comments on that? One of the most interesting findings um, in my research is that vegetarianism is more of an ideology than a practice. So we know most vegetarians eat meat. Uh, 60% eat fish, 30%, I'm sorry, 60% eat poultry, 30% eat uh, red meat <laughs> occasionally. So yeah, there's an ideology there. Where I ended up on it was that I think it is a personal ethical decision. I think it's like arguing about abortion. You know, if you think that eating meat is killing animals, I, I don't I don't think there's anything I can say to, to change your mind. Um, but I, I do think that, um, yeah, there's sort of an ideological motivation behind it. And it's not it's not necessary to save the natural environment, though I do think there are some benefits in terms of land use. So I always say, if you're concerned about the endangered species and wild animals, you know, you should favor producing more meat on less land. You should try to eat less meat. And if you are eating meat, you should be eating farmed fish and more chicken rather than cows. Now, um, a couple of uh, factoids, which I, I think would help the three really here. I'd just like to pick up and you can be brief because I'd like to get onto the meat of your book in, in a lot of ways. Uh, Adam Parkin is curious, how sure are we that climate change is mainly a function of man-made emissions? Uh, Mark Cook is curious, uh, the retreat of the glaciers in the Alps in France, is that, is that part of a natural cycle? And uh, finally, um, Christopher Gleedel, uh, points out that over the last 800,000 years, uh, O2 levels seem to have dropped about 0.7%. Uh, you know, any thoughts on those three things in, ter in terms of how they fit into your thesis? Yeah, I mean, I um, I basically accept all of the IPCC science of climate change. I think that carbon dioxide is obviously a heat-trapping gas. I think we may have very well been heading towards a cooling period and may have prevented it with our carbon emissions. Um, I don't make a, I don't really spend a lot of time going through it, but I just think it's pretty well established that the planet is warming. Um, we have both good temperature records now better calibrated on land, but also from the oceans. All else being equal, we don't want any change in temperatures. Of course, not all else is equal. We depend on energy for both protecting our both living and, and protecting the natural environment. So, so we can't get away from some amount of it. But as a rule, my view is we should try to keep temperatures on the lower side. And that means we should try to keep emissions down. The good news is, is that every time we transition to zero, lower carbon energy sources, we also end up reducing conventional air pollutants that I think everybody, including climate skeptics, agree we want fewer of. Okay. Um, in your presentation, uh, water uh, didn't feature that strongly um, in the area. And Peter Cousins is curious. We've heard about uh, competition for water um, and you know water footprints. Will competition for water become a problem? 
Well, we've always been competing for water. I mean, I think that's the important thing. We have a very, for places that are water scarce, we have a very good technology in the form of desalination. The Israelis have been using desalination for many years. It's gotten much better. It's gotten much more efficient. It actually pairs particularly well with nuclear power since nuclear can create very high temperatures that allow for less, less costly desalination. So, yeah, I mean, the short version is, um, you know, we have we have good solutions, particularly if you have plentiful energy, then you can you can make fresh water. In fact, in Arizona, there's a beautiful nuclear plant, three reactors that recycles most of Phoenix's wastewater and turns it back into potable drinking water again through those high temperatures that nuclear power plants offer. So, you know, for me, that's why I think energy is the key to decoupling human flourishing from environmental damage. When you have cheap abundant energy, you'll never run out of fresh water, fertilizer. Um, you can you can recycle materials that need to be recycled, but the key the key to that is cheap and abundant energy, and that, that's part of the reason I'm so in favor of nuclear. Yeah, that was one of the things that I really took from your book that we kind of need to push through abundant energy to get to the resourcefulness that we need, and then uh, this and this has been proven over some periods of time. Uh, Benish Saeed uh, congratulates you with a great point about the wealth factor. Um, Simon Herland uh, says, loved this. One question, what energy mix do you envisage as the optimal for the Earth in 2050? Or what combination of environmentally conscious measures like reforestation would complement your ideal energy mix? Well, I, I, the way I think of it is as energy transitions. So we all start out using wood and dung as our primary source of energy. Most poor countries start their development by building large hydroelectric dams. I consider it the highest and most useful form of renewables. From there, countries either build coal plants, which are superior to burning wood in every way. And now there's so much natural gas we are successfully extracting that it looks like many countries like Mozambique and Africa will be able to leapfrog over coal to natural gas. My view is that if you're using natural gas, then we should try to transition to nuclear power, which reduces your emissions to almost zero, and it also reduces your land footprint to close to zero. I mean, even the mining for uranium is now done mostly underground, and the nuclear plants, you can fit, you know, you can produce enough power for three million people on an area the size of three football fields. So for me, in 2100, 2200, I would love to see humankind as entirely powered by nuclear energy. We may still use some fossil fuels to make plastics. And it'll take a while to transition from natural gas for heating and cooking. If we end up using hydrogen gas, you have to refurbish the infrastructure to some extent. But these are very slow transitions in general. So, you know, um, it may take 50, 100 years to make that transition occur. I personally don't see any need for industrial solar and wind farms at this point. They take up too much land. The impact on wildlife is too devastating. I, I, I don't see any need for it. If you have nuclear power, you don't need renewables. Um, Okay. Um, Jasper DeReed is curious, where do you and don't you agree with Bjorn Lundberg? 
I mean, Bjorn and I mostly agree. Uh, I mean, it's a little academic, the disagreements that we have. I Part of what I wanted to do in Apocalypse Never was to describe the physical basis of a new vision of environmental progress. And so the big, I think the big story here is energy transitions and power density. Power density is just how much power can you produce on, a, on an amount of land. It's a simple calculation. You can draw a line on Google Maps around a power plant and divide it by the amount of land it takes to get that calculation. Bjorn uses a lot of cost benefit analysis, which is what economists use. It's what the Nobel Prize winning economist William Nordhaus used in his famous models of the impact of climate change. I cited William Nordhaus just because he's such a major figure. But for me, I am not a big cost benefit person because I think that the people, I think that when people do models, even when they're well intentioned and they are showing their assumptions, that the assumptions end up getting hidden from view from policymakers. And those models end up creating what, what we call false precision. So you'll sometimes see people say things like, you know, if Trump were president, then global warming would be X amount worse. I mean, these these calculations are pretty silly. So that's where when people say, what should we do about climate change or air pollution or whatever? I say always think of energy transitions. If you're using coal, you want to go to natural gas or nuclear. If you're using natural gas, you want to go to nuclear. If you're using wood and dung, anything is better. And that's the right way to think about it, because I think any other way, these these targets, these these commitments, these ideal energy mixes. It's not how policymakers make decisions in the real world. It's just kind of a game for diplomats at the United Nations to play. And I think it is a, um, you know, a bit of a manipulation in the sense of, of how to, you know, how to actually reduce emissions. You know, I spend most of my, I'm a, I still, I, I'm an environmental activist. I still consider myself a climate activist. I still engage in climate activism. I, I advocate for nuclear power plants most of the time when policymakers like in the Netherlands right now or in Britain are trying to decide what energy source to use. They're not making decisions on like what's the ideal energy mix in 2050. They're just deciding, should we build this nuclear plant or not? So for me, that's the level at which I think the advocacy needs to take place. Now, now in your book, you, you spoke about um, the cult of death of things like Extinction Rebellion and just turning to the alarmism bit. And I remember, in fact, a, a book that Michael Crichton wrote uh, just before he died called State of Fear, where he was pointing out that, in fact, you know, environmentalism and universities and think tanks, and, and we both run one, uh, it, to some degree, thrive on fear. Uh, Matthew Leach is going, has the progress achieved so far been motivated by environmental alarm or by something else? I.e., we may not like it, but do we need to continue with alarm to keep up the progress? Yeah, I addressed that question at the end of chapter one in Apocalypse Never. And what I point out is that, you know, carbon emissions have peaked in peaked in Britain, France and Germany in the mid 70s. They peaked in the United States and North America over 13 years ago. And they did so be, um, mostly because of the transition from coal to natural gas and to nuclear. Well, climate alarmists adamantly oppose both natural gas and nuclear. In at least fracking for natural gas. So alarmists, and one of the questions I had is why, if people are so alarmed about climate change, do they oppose the main technologies that have reduced carbon emissions, which are natural gas 
and nuclear. And so, no, I don't think that alarmism has helped to reduce emissions. I think technological change and energy transitions have helped to reduce emissions. I think some broader environmental concern has helped. Everybody knows natural gas is better than coal. Everybody knows that. And so when you ask people, would you rather burn coal or natural gas? Everybody says natural gas, even the ones that are opposing fracking. So I do think some amount of environmental concern is good, but the alarmism just has been out of control. I mean, it's really not right that a lot of children think that they won't live long enough to have their own kids. There's been a lot, a big rise in anxiety and depression among everybody before COVID, by the way, <laughs> exacerbated by COVID, but including among young people. And I just think that's wrong. I think it's unethical. It's obviously false. Kids have more reason to be optimistic than they have reasons to be pessimistic. And they need to be told the truth about the good news. And I just don't think it's the case that 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 depressing people motivates people. I think actually what motivates people is to tell them, hey, you know, humans, we're doing pretty well and we should keep doing well. We should lean into our strengths. In fact, everything we know from positive psychology shows that people are much more motivated and excited to make social change when they think they have a chance of succeeding. Nobody wants to nobody wants to work on a lost cause and the cause is not lost. There's a lot of there's a lot of hope out there. Right. Well, what I'd like to do quickly uh, is just assess the state of uh, change in the audience, if I might. Uh, so Morgan's going to launch the poll. Um, uh, it's the same as before. So please do send in your answers. Whilst you're answering, I'll just point out uh, for Michael's sake, a lot of comments. Folks, all the questions and comments uh, will be sent to Michael if he wants to get back in touch with you. Um, some very positive ones here, uh, but some questions, too, about you know desalination, desalination not near coastal areas. Uh, Paul Foley sort of concerned about the uh, scale, frankly, of carbon already in the atmosphere, as we know. A positive comment from Jasper DeReed about the energy intensity of nuclear. Robert Woodthorpe Brown curious about comparing different nuclear technologies looking forward to lots of things there. But I think the poll is uh, nearly complete. So if Morgan would like to show the results, um, I think it's a, a quite a swing to I suspect, Michael, what, what you would see is the, the more sensible position, you know, not too alarmed, but a little bit, so a practical watching eye on things. Is that correct? Yeah, um, I, I, I think I'm not, the word I use is concern and care. You know, I think it's really important to care and be concerned. It's why I, I live and it's my purpose is to try to achieve nature and prosperity for all. And yeah, I just think, um, it's the exaggeration, the alarmism, the apocalyptic catastrophism, the, the asking of people to panic. <laughs> it's just um, doesn't bring out our best. Now, we're over time, sadly, which I always know because people are sending in thanks, which we'll get to you. But just a quick ending question from Paul Taffender. Uh, and I know that you've uh, been around the world. Your book is a bit of a travel log, too. Um, how do we get governments to pay attention to your message of, you know, be concerned but not alarmed? Well, there's two grassroots environmental movements that I'm involved with that I am so excited about. One of them is called Stand Up for Nuclear, which is just a grassroots um, pro-nuclear demonstrations. It's so simple, but what we find is that it's so paradoxical for people to see people protesting for nuclear, that it's had a lot of success in making the case to policymakers for nuclear. 
And then we're part of another movement called Stand Together for Communities and Wildlife that is doing um, that is, is supporting communities resisting industrial renewables when they have negative impacts on communities and wildlife. So I would love for folks to be involved in both of those. You know, I've, I've been hopeful because I've received a lot of emails from policymakers who are reading Apocalypse Never and going through the footnotes. So, yeah, your support is really welcome. I'd love for people to join Environmental Progress. You can follow me on Twitter at ShellenbergerMD or visit environmentalprogress.org and let's be in touch. Usually the answers to most of the questions are on the website, but I answer every email I get. So if people want to email me, my email is michaelschellenberger at gmail.com. Okay. And, uh, and I'll be sending you a lot with emails and, uh, quite interesting. Uh, you've had at least two book sales while we've been online. So hopefully it was worth filing in from California. Uh, a real delight to have you, Michael. Um, really a, a message that needs to get out there and to stimulate the debate. And we truly appreciate it. Unfortunately, in this age of COVID, I am unable to open uh, the floodgates of applause. Um, but I will come back to thank you in a minute. Uh, firstly, I'd like to say thank you to our sponsors who are up there. They're very much involved in technology, economics, finance, and science. And uh, this is very much up our street. A reminder that tomorrow we have a really fun session with Dr. Raj Perso, the famous psychologist. And he's going to be talking about how to panic properly in a pandemic. And I think you'll all find that an interesting thing, uh, particularly as we move into Christmas. So it'll make you enjoy your Christmas tipple that, that much better. All the rest is on the website. But Michael, I'm afraid all I can do is to offer you my applause meter uh, which is from my uh, Korean temple in Bulgokson, and it's my Korean karmic clapper. And I say thank you, and a real delight to have you here. Appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Michael. Thanks, everybody.